from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I am your host, Laura Watkins. Filling in, as your usual hosts are super busy doing some really exciting things with clients all over the world. So I'm stepping out from behind the scenes and taking to the mic for this week's show. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? And on this week's show, we're talking about payment platform Adyen getting its UK banking license. And we're joined by the VP of product at Adyen to tell us more about what this means for them, what they can do now that they couldn't do before, and the role that Brexit played in bringing all that to pass. Female Invest partners with Invest Engine to tackle the gender investment gap. And we spoke about how women are often risk averse when it comes to investments, which can keep them out of the investing space, but also makes them more successful once they do enter. And the importance of the education needed overall to encourage them into the space in the first place. And finally, do police dogs deserve a pension? That's the question we're asking as Leicester Police is rewarding as retired police dogs with a pension. And I also encourage our guests to bring out their best pet-related puns. We'll get into all this and much more on today's show. Back after these messages. Looking to take your customer journeys to the next level and benchmark your products against the best in financial services? Well, look no further than 11FS Pulse. Home to over 5,700 user journeys covering everything from onboarding to crypto. It features analysis of global brands like Nubank, Revolut, and Robinhood. It's already tried and trusted by big names like Monzo, whose co-founder Jonas said their research phase took just a tenth of the time it normally would, thanks to 11FS Pulse. Join Monzo and hundreds of other brands taking their UX game to the next level by booking a demo today at 11fspulse.com forward slash demo. That's 11fspulse.com forward slash demo. Hello, it's Benjamin here, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS. Earlier this year, we published Building the Future of Home Buying, a report that calls out financial services for making the biggest, most significant purchase of most people's lives way more difficult than it needs to be. Well, fast forward to today and things haven't changed. Mortgage offerings are more important now than they have ever been, with sky-high interest rates in many countries forcing home buyers to shop around. We've got clients asking us how to move quickly to fix the problem and get a game-changing product to market. Want to know the secret? Step one, download the report at 11fs.com slash homebuying. Step two, get in touch at 11fs.com slash ventures. Speak soon. Welcome to episode 783 of Fintech Insider. I'm Laura Watkins, executive producer at 11FS. I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by three great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by Tom Reuter, VP of Product at Agen. Pleasure to have you on the podcast today. You've clearly been keeping very busy over at Agen, and which we'll be talking about very shortly. Can you tell our listeners a little about yourself and your role at Agen? Yeah, uh, thanks for having us. Um, uh, my name is Tom Ruder. Um, within Adyen, are responsible for our banking and financial products uh, and therefore heavily involved in obtaining our uh, UK bank authorization. Next to payments processing, we also do other financial products like issuance of bank accounts, uh, cards, uh, lending, uh, payouts. Uh, so it brings us uh, into a broader uh, financial technology suite which we're going to discuss very shortly. Um, so great to have you with us. Uh, we also give a warm Fintech Insider welcome to Tiamat Rezezadeh, VP of Product Marketing and Insights at GoCardless. Thank you so much for joining us today. What should our listeners know about you and, and what you and the team at GoCardless have been working on lately? Thanks for having me, Laura. Um, yes, yeah, so for those who don't know GoCardless, um, you know, we're a global bank payments business helping customers collect payments and uh, money directly from their customers' bank accounts. We've been around for you know 12 plus years. And I guess lately we've been working on things like a new five-year agreement with Zero, one of our strategic partners, building on that relationship and to help small businesses get paid faster uh, and rolling out a product for payment providers, you know, like Adian, in fact, called GoCardless Embed. Um, and for me personally, um, you know, I've been, been been here for quite a few, for quite a while. I've spent a good chunk of my time trying to figure out what our customers 
actually care about so we can deliver products and experiences that really matter to them. Um, alongside another decent chunk of my time looking at history and specifically more, most recently payments history. Um, so like what's the history of payments? What's the history of money? Um, and so I don't know if some people will find this interesting or not interesting, but uh, in the last couple of weeks, I've gone super deep on a specific Roman coin called the silver hexagram issued by Heraclius in the sixth or fifth century, seventh century, maybe, uh, was actually and why it was actually designed the way it was. So if anybody ever wants to chat about that, please, uh, please just feel free to connect. But, yeah. Amazing. I actually uh, studied Roman history as part of my classics degree. So I might take you up on that. Please do. Yeah. And last but no means least, we have a Fintech Insider News return uh, for Tessa Bryant, Head of Brand and Communications at Lightyear. Welcome back. And it's great to have you with us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Lightyear? Hi, yes. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Lightyear is an investment platform backed by Richard Branson um, in Europe to help people and businesses grow their wealth through stocks, funds, interest on uninvested cash. Um, we're HQ'd over here in the UK, but we're live in 22 different countries in Europe. And I guess lately, um, probably a couple of our biggest uh, projects over the last few months have been um, launching business accounts and also um, money market funds with BlackRock. Amazing. So much going on. Uh, and with that, let's get into the news. Um, so our first story comes from CNBC, which is that Adyen have secured a UK banking license to challenge Stripe. Um, so Adyen's new banking license means it can now offer cash advances to SMEs through its merchant partners. Adyen already operates as an acquiring bank in the Netherlands, which allows it to process payments instantly without the dependence on merchant partners. The move will deepen Adjin's footprint in the UK as it looks to compete with a US payment giant Stripe. And the article uh, concedes that the news may not resonate well with Revolut, which has been trying to get a UK banking license since 2021 and has been hindered by numerous issues. And so Adjin, I guess, he leapfrogged over them uh, in that challenge. So uh, naturally, I would come to Tom first on this. Can you tell us more about this? How does your new banking license change uh, what it means for Adyen and how you operate in the UK? Yeah, um, I think on, on one end, it, it doesn't change uh, how we operate in the UK. Um, we are since 2017 uh, a licensed bank in Europe with a European banking license. And based on that, we, uh, we offer uh, our payments processing uh, services uh, to our customers in the UK. But of course, as a uh, following Brexit, um, uh, our license had a certain end date and uh, we were operating under a temporary permissions regime. Um, and in order to remain a local acquirer in the UK, we had to, uh, one of the, the routes was to uh, obtain a UK uh, bank authorization, uh, which we now have, so we can continue investing in the UK market, uh, one of our uh, strategic important markets. So basically, we can continue with, with payments processing as we did. Um, and why is it important to be a local acquirer? Uh, it gives you basically the highest service levels as a customer. So we have the, the highest speed, the most flexibility, the best reliability, because you're not dependent on other parties and you can offer all the services front to back uh, in-house. In and so therefore, we can guarantee the best service to a customer. So that's something we continue. On the other hand, um, uh, this also brings us new opportunities. Since last year, we're helping our platform customers. So basically see it as big platforms that help uh, SMBs to, uh, to succeed in business. That can be either a SaaS platform or, for instance, a marketplace. And these customers were asking us to help them with not only payments processing, but with a broader uh, suite of uh, financial products that they can embed into their offering. You can think of bank accounts, uh, short-term lending capital, or, or card issuance. And uh, with this uh, new uh, bank authorization, we're able to issue local uh, UK account numbers. Uh, we can connect to the central bank directly. So also there, we do not uh, we do not have a dependency on on local banks in the UK, which we have until today. And we can offer these services directly. We can also connect to faster payments directly, uh, bringing uh, advantages to a customer so they can use that to accept payments from their customers or uh, we can pay out faster to, um, uh, to, in the case of platforms, to their user base. Amazing. So it's a lot about, I mean, obviously Brexit obviously had a role to play in why this was so necessary, but also it's super important from what you're saying is to be that kind of local provider, really uh, deep knowledge of the market that that, that you're in uh, and continue to work in as you expand. Is that correct? Yeah, indeed. So, so Brexit was a factor, but it was not the, the, the only one. Like we, we wanted 
uh, in our uh, strategic markets. We want to be uh, as local and as direct as possible. So we have a, a European banking license now, which is relevant, let's say, mainland Europe. Um, we have our US branch license, so we can also offer banking services in the, in the United States. And now we can also offer um, uh, uh, the banking services directly from the UK and have access to uh, to the Bank of England, faster payments and the likes. Fantastic. And uh, Sima, if I bring you in here, like GoCardler is obviously headquartered in the UK, but kind of works globally. How important is that kind of local market knowledge uh, to being able to offer those kind of products and services as you guys do? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hugely important, right? I mean, um, you can I probably think about it in a couple of different areas, right? So I think in the first place, just understanding what customers actually want in those markets, um, how they think, how they operate, what their needs and challenges are, and, and are they particularly unique in those markets? Um, hugely important, especially when it comes to to payments and you think about things like payment preferences, What? how do people like to pay for certain types of things, right? Whether does it change in different demographics, different age groups, different types of services. So having that presence and that ability to understand the market, um, first of all, is it, it can change how you offer your service and it, and it can really help um, determine how you go to market as well. I think as, uh, as Tom has also said, um, really importantly, um, the closer you can get to the source of things, the greater fidelity that you have, the greater, um, the more kind of customization you can perform, the fewer points of failure there are, the, the lower chance of things going wrong, the more control you have. And, um, and so being, you know, presence and, and uh, as tightly or as, as directly plugged into the plumbing um, helps you do all of that. And ultimately, the goal there is how do you offer the best possible service to your to your customers, right? So um, uh, that's the that's always the goal. And that's what helps you helps you achieve it. A hundred percent. And Tessie, you're you're nodding along there. What are your thoughts? Obviously, as you mentioned, light years kind of pushing into more and more markets. Do you resonate with, with what both Tom and, and Timak are saying? Yeah, I think it's Obviously, in the investment world, I think it's pretty similar in the sense of like Europe isn't a one size fits all approach. So like every market has a different attitude to money and a different like culture surrounding money. They have different payment methods, there's different open banking methods, uh, different regulators, different languages, different currencies. So the closer you can get, the better. Like for from an investment perspective, obviously, if you're closer with the local regulators, you can start building like really tailored local products. Like it's great that, for example, like here we've got. Yeah, 22 countries or whatever it is, but we have the like kind of US and European markets and the UK markets plugged into that. But in the UK, you have, for example, like an ISA and every European country will have their own version of like whatever that tax wrapper investment product is. So to be able to do the truly like local products, you need to be closer to the local regulators and you'd have licenses in different places. So I think similar to like what you guys were saying, it fits in probably most aspects of fintech, I reckon. Um, it, it, it probably plays an important part for everybody. 100%. I think that, that sort of like local knowledge, product market fit, all of that is probably something we're just going to keep going over uh, as we actually kind of go through some of the stories on, on today's show uh, and beyond. Um, Tom, if I can come back to you. A lot has been made in kind of the, the media coverage of this, at least, around that kind of competition with Stripe and whether you're you're taking on Stripe, you're challenging Stripe. Is is that you know is that in coming from inside the house as well? Is that your kind of uh, area of the game, or or is that kind of more a speculation on on your future plans? Yeah, I think I think typically I didn't Stripe both great companies, but I think uh, originally uh, Stripe was really focused on the the SMB segment and and basically grew uh, upwards, and, and we're mainly focused on the enterprise segment. So we really know how to service uh, multinational businesses that operate in many countries around the globe. And that that like using SMB processes a couple of transactions a day. These can uh, process um, uh, tens or maybe hundreds of transactions a second. So that we really focus on this enterprise segment and we were specifically um, focused on, on servicing them with the best. And therefore, we need to be really uh, deeply connected, uh, not only in the car schemes, but also into the to the banking world in, in the countries that are most important to us. And so there are similarities, but also you're not actively challenging Stripe in exactly the same way um, and you have different and leading markets. Uh, yeah, I, I think we, um, if we, if we look at, um, we both service platforms, I think they were in, in the same market where usually one big international platform services a lot of SMBs in, 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 in 
one or multiple countries. Uh, and I think there we offer the same type of services. Uh, we have a slightly different approach where we want to go all the way uh, directly to the, uh, basically based on our own licenses and that we own all technology ourselves and their Stripe is a bit of a different approach. But so yeah, so we, we see each other in the market, but a different way of uh, uh, approaching our licensing trade. And so what kind of comes next for you guys? So you, you, you've got the banking license, ostensibly to kind of continue what you were already doing, uh, thanks to, to Brexit, adding a few complications in there. Um, but is there anything new that you can tell us that this will allow you to do further down the track? Um, don't give anything away that's under NDA, of course, but if there is anything you can share with us, that would be great. Yeah, I, I think we can uh, basically continue the path that we uh, we basically ended last year uh, by offering these financial products, and we can now do it on a local end. And that, I think that makes a, a huge difference for our customers. Uh, we typically operate in uh, platforms that, that operate in multiple countries. And the beauty of our platform is they integrate once to the platform. And then if you want to issue a bank account in the UK or in the US or let's say in the Netherlands, um, we can offer these local services and everything works the same for the platform. So they, they do not need to uh, uh, integrate to multiple systems, uh, have different types of reports or et cetera, et cetera. So, you can go really fast, uh, uh, scale your international business. And if you're a software as a service company, yeah, software scales really fast, uh, also across borders. Uh, so then we can basically, we provide technology that keeps up with, uh, with each business. Fantastic. And uh, CMAC, you're nodding there. I guess that kind of ease of onboarding, that kind of one-stop shop, once you're onboarded, you, you're in kind of uh, mentality is, is also really valuable to, to what you guys do as well, right? Absolutely. Um, it, it just reminded me of uh, a, a story we, we talk about sometimes when it comes to go cardless. When um, you know our kind of foundation was always in the kind of the, the direct debit space, right? So um, how do we help businesses collect money directly from people's bank accounts and and, and do that in multiple countries? And, and one of the things that we found super early on was that whilst there are different direct debit schemes and different payment schemes in uh, countries that ostensibly operate in a very similar way, they are actually very different under the hoods. And, and one of the reasons why you rarely saw large multinational companies using these things is because actually it was super hard to go to, you know, a bank in one country, a bank in France, a bank in the UK, a bank in the US and tie that all together. Um, and But then if you can tie that all together and offer a simple API that, you know, someone can plug into and collect payments from, you know, a customer in the UK, a customer in uh, Australia and, and a customer in Italy, all via a single API, even though very different systems underneath that. Um, it's just a great and easy way for people to actually scale their businesses. And as Tom said, um, you know, especially with you know, SaaS companies, for example, which which scale fast, they, they, they can't be integrating different schemes, different systems uh, one by one. It, it just doesn't make any sense to do that. So, yeah. Well, I think we could probably talk around uh, this kind of product market fit and, and international expansion as much as possible. But I'm going to move us to the next story, which actually continues that conversation to a certain degree. So this story comes from TechCrunch, uh, and it is that Perfius raises $229 million as it eyes a Europe and North American expansion. So again, that expansion piece that we were just talking about. Uh, so Perfius is the Indian fintech providing real-time underwriting solutions, which has raised $229 million in its latest round of investment. The software offers a number of services, including AI-powered credit risk evaluations. This technology can be provided to banks and other financial institutions to automate credit risk evaluations and provide immediate loan decisions, thus speeding up the underwriting process. The company already claims to be the market leader in India, with a strong footprint in the Middle East and Southeast Asia. With this investment, Perfius is now looking further afield, targeting expansion across North America and Europe. IPO rumors are also circulating, with some predicting it could be within the next couple of years. So when I, I read the story, obviously there's a there's a lot of interest around the, the kind of AI piece in that. But I also think what's interesting is the huge growth of Perfius itself, uh, which is now apparently valued following that investment at $900 million, which is 120% growth since their last fundraise. Um, Tessa, what are your immediate thoughts on that kind of growth trajectory uh, of a company to grow in that in that way in just a year? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty impressive. I mean, especially recently, like 
I think like the last sort of year or so, you've seen a lot of people like struggle to kind of get those like major stage rounds in. I think like the sort of seed in Series A has been like probably stronger than like a Series B is very high and even very, very difficult to raise recently. So it's pretty cool that like you have that in the last year or so. Um, it's very impressive. And also the, the sort of like biggest investors in the sort of Indian fintech space, I find really interesting because it's like some of the biggest names in the business. You've got like Sequoia in there, Y Combinator, Angel lifts, like these people are investing heavily into Indian fintech. And that's pretty exciting growth trajectory for the past year. A hundred percent. And and as you say, like, what do you think um, that tells us more broadly about the Indian fintech landscape in that it does have those huge players, both homegrown and from abroad, kind of really investing their money in this space? Yeah, I was, I, I read that TechCrunch piece and I was, I was thinking a little bit more about it. And, and the government's like really heavily pushing a sort of cashless economy in India, like, kind of building out the, the right sort of internet infrastructure in especially like rural areas, which obviously you have more internet, you have the ability to do more things and finance comes like very heavily into that. You're suddenly able to like send and receive money that maybe isn't even in the same currency and you're able to start doing more things. Um, but also like that in turn increases more competition as well, which I think is like really cool because then other fintechs are going to be popping up doing similar things. Um, and all of that is just very good for economic growth in general. So like these sort of big Silicon Valley-esque investors are obviously seeing a lot of potential um, in that. And I I don't know, I hazard a guess that that comes from the fact that the government is so deeply pushing this like cashless economy somewhere where like cash was very much king. Yeah, definitely. And and the kind of the um, UPI, like faster payments interface, like they're, they're really investing heavily in, um, you know, getting fintech moving, getting people uh, access to, to financial services in ways that, you know, maybe traditionally uh, weren't um, available. Um, and equally, I was reading that the this space, the Indian space is the second highest funded geography after the US in Q1 2023, which is kind of huge because that actually doesn't make as many headlines uh, as, as you'd imagine. Uh, we, you know, we've talked on this show about a lot of sort of African funding stories and, and of course the US and everywhere else, but this is this is kind of huge and it's gone a little bit under the radar. Uh, Matt, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it just reminds you it's a big wide world, right? Um, with lots of people doing innovative things, um, lots of opportunities. And um, we, you know, UPI, is, as you kind of just mentioned, is something that we, um, you know, track quite a lot here at Go Cardless as a as an example of, uh, you know, a, a way that kind of bank based payments can can work really well and and unlock a lot of growth and like really kind of help people in 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 you know different scenarios. So India is a great example of that. And, and as you as you say, it's a, it's a big wide world with lots of interesting things going on, and you can look for inspiration from from almost anywhere. Um, and this is a, a great example of that. Definitely. And Tom, I'm interested in your thoughts. So. Uh, the CEO of Perfia said that this investment will help us in strengthening the digital transformation journey of our partners, which thereby is powering financial inclusion and providing access to financial services to billions across the globe. So the, the question is, um, is better tech alone powering that financial inclusion? Um, you know, is, is tech enough uh, or, you know, does that really play the role in financial inclusion or is it more what the tech is enabling underneath that is, is driving uh, the change? I think it's an enabler. Um, like, there are a couple of other factors that are really important. I think uh, culture, um, uh, government policies, and some other things that that really can make the difference, or uh, both positive and negative, uh, for financial inclusion. So I think that is, you know, you can see it as an enabler. It makes it easier, but it's definitely not the uh, the, the silver bullet. Yeah, tech alone won't solve the problems, right? I think he does say, to be fair, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but um, you know, they, they, it's the um, the stack of decision analytics that they want to improve, and I guess it's the decisions that the tech is helping to drive that maybe uh, uh, helps with that financial inclusion piece. If people are better informed about what their money is or isn't doing for them, then they can probably make better decisions off the back of that. Is is that fair to say? Um, I, I think if you can make decisions faster, that would really help. It's uh, yeah, and um, uh, the question is if the decisions are are better. But I think that that can also uh, let's say mature or grow over time. Yeah. So 
decisions are made fast, that, that really helps. Yeah, speed is everything, right? But obviously, as you say, it's got to be a good decision. Otherwise, you might make a bad decision quickly, which isn't always the best idea. Um, just, just, just making a series of bad decisions really fast is not exactly what we're looking to do. But. No, I don't think that helps at all. Um, a lot of learning opportunities. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fast failing, perhaps, but uh, maybe, yeah, equally what you so need. So if the AI is just teaching itself, yeah. then it's just learning the bad <laughs> Well, that is true. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna mention the the AI piece on this. Uh, in that they say that they have a, a, an AI powered underwriting process. Um, you know, as you say, like if it's teaching itself, is is that a good thing? How do we feel about that from a kind of security perspective, Tessa? What are your kind of immediate thoughts when you hear that? I guess my immediate thoughts are like. It probably, like, two sides of the coin, right? It's learning faster than it would do. But then also you kind of need to balance it with, there are probably some regulatory constraints there where you have to like also be, have a human monitoring what it's learning so that it's not like self-coding like biases into it. Um, there's probably something in there that has, especially with underwriting, because like you're doing quotes on like people's data and stuff. So there's probably, to make sure you're avoiding all of that like bias, you probably do have to have some form of like, I guess, reporting that does involve um, humans. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that there's got to be sort of checks and balances on it to make sure that it is is kind of operating fairly. And, you know, as, as I mean, we're joking, but, you know, not teaching itself the wrong things over time. Um, I have to say with my, my kind of producer hat on for a second, putting AI in a headline does tend to grab attention. Do we think there's a certain amount of that in there as well? Like just throwing the fact that it's an AI underwriting process in with the funding announcement, is that, is that potentially like courting attention as well in a crowded market? I, I, I don't doubt that when the headlines were being written, the, the, uh, there was a certain school of thought which was like, well, we're doing this, let's make something of it, right? And there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm sure in different guises and in different uh, scenarios, we've all um, put our best foot forward depending on on, on what we're trying to do. So, um, uh, And uh, it's definitely a hot topic at the moment, right? So um, I guess, why wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so this platform has obviously succeeded very, very well in in Asia and the Middle East. Looking at that kind of product market fit that we were talking about in the previous story, um, how well do you think that might work uh, in the European or American market? Um, and particularly with those kind of concerns that we just raised around the kind of AI underwriting. Uh, so, Matt, what do you think about um, operating as you do in both of those markets? Yeah, I mean, I think the the key is uh, the thing that people are going to care about most is are are you able to make better decisions faster? And if you can do those things and offer services, you know, faster, more accurately, more cost effective, cheaper um, to your to your customers and potential customers, there's always going to be a space for the how of how you do that, right? Um, and that's as true in India as it is in Europe as it is in the US. Um, I think that. You know, maybe back to the uh, to the ethics of, of of some of this stuff. Um, I think you know the ethical use of AI is obviously a hugely important topic. And as Tessa said, it takes really deliberate, thoughtful design to kind of start make that happen. And 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 in you know countries across the globe, including across Europe and, and North America, people are very very aware of that. Um, as an example, we we released a, a product a couple of years ago called Success Plus, which um, uses kind of machine learning to predict whether people have money in their bank account, right? Um, and, you know, we, we took a very deliberate approach to figuring out, okay, well, how do we make sure that we kind of develop that with the right kind of set of ethical principles, um, you know, so that, uh, you know, we developed a practical framework for making sure the different machine learning models were, you know, incorporating both data ethics and protecting privacy. Um, and in doing so, it probably made our job a lot harder, um, but it meant that, when people ask these sorts of questions, um, we could kind of talk through, okay, well, this is what we're doing to make this as safe as we possibly can. Um, and so I think that, you know, people are have growing awareness of AI and machine learning and what the upsides are and what the downsides are. And so I think as long as you're clear about what you're doing in terms of thoughtful design, um, you're probably in a good spot because ultimately, if you can do that and make things you know, faster, better, cheaper, um, you're going to have a market. Completely. And Tom, final word to you on this. They're pushing into markets that you're very familiar with. Adyen itself has, has good sort of entered into the US market recently. How different is that market, do you think? Is that, you know, going to be a challenge if that isn't your home market? What's your kind of experience there? 
uh, entering a new market is as always a lot of as a learning curve i think it differs a bit per market sometimes markets are a bit more similar than others we're also present for instance in the indian market and there you have like data localization laws that you need to really understand and and, and uh, yeah so i i find it hard to to judge how it is to go from india to us but um uh entering a new market always brings surprises absolutely and we will be following their progress to see what those prizes may be uh, in due course. But of course, we, we wish them well. Um, so we're just going to take a quick break here and we will be back very shortly. This is Fintech Insider After Dark. We are breaking out of the studio and bringing it to the community. It's a live recording of the Fintech Insider podcast featuring your favorite hosts and big name guests. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Join us and become a certified Fintech Insider. Whether it's beers in London or pizza in New York, catch up with Fintech geeks and make new friends across the financial services ecosystem. This is packed out, right? This is standing yeah. We are bringing After Dark to the Village Underground in London on the 20th of September. Click the link in the podcast description or visit 11fs.com slash afterdark. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Good night. So welcome back. Before we get into the second half of the news, uh, just a quick note to go check out our most recent Fintech Insider Insights show. In that show, we take a look back to a previous episode where we discuss how to measure success in fintech. We released this back in December 2022, but it's no less relevant today than it was then. Benjamin was joined by Kate Palansar from Anthemis, Nick Milanovic from This Week in Fintech, and Richard Davies of Alica Bank to debate what the real markers of success are in fintech. What should we be celebrating when it comes to fintech, and has the industry got its priorities right? Go check out that episode in our podcast feed. It'll be the one just below this one. Uh, but now let's get back into the news. And our next story is that Female Invest is partnering with Invest Engine to tackle the gender investment gap. So this story was in the FinTech Times. Um, so Female Invest is partnering with Invest Engine on a campaign to raise awareness of the gender investment gap in the UK. Invest Engine research in the UK has shown that although men and women are equally likely to set money aside, women are more risk averse and far less likely to invest opting instead for lower yield savings accounts. However, female investors on average see greater returns from investments, outperforming their male counterparts by 1.8%. The new campaign focuses on raising awareness of investing among women through a series of events in September, October, and November. These will cover various financial subjects aiming to empower women with the knowledge and tools they need to succeed in the investment world. Um, Tessa, from your background in uh, Lightyear and investments, what's what kind of your thoughts on this? Um, is this a good issue to tackle? Um, you know, what what is that like in your perspective uh, in the UK? Is it as bad as this data suggests? Yeah, I guess my two cents like overarching, and this is definitely still a thing. Like, change doesn't happen overnight. It's like been very important what's happened over the last few years. We've seen lots more women start investing, but just like even getting retail investors into investing took however many years to even get to the point where everybody has now, you know, got an app on their phone and investing to get, you know, the female population up to sort of parity there isn't going to happen, I guess, as as quickly as everybody sort of really wants it to. It is just going to take a bit of time. I would say that UK and like the bigger European countries, um, you think about like Germany, even like the countries up in sort of like the Nordic area as well, have got a lot more of like a focus on it. They've, there's sort of like, there's platforms that are geared directly towards like really plugging that gap. There's female role model investors that you can kind of like follow. There's like influencers that you can sort of get some knowledge from, communities that are set up. There's a lot of countries in Europe that have none of that. And if you think about the data on a whole, that those countries will be sort of like pulling that, 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 that those numbers down. But particularly in the UK, I think there's a lot of positives to be drawn out of the last few years. But, I mean, we're definitely not there yet. At Lightyear, our numbers aren't at parity yet. We're working really hard to make sure that they get there. Um, but uh, I don't think anybody actually has is, is, is got the secret source per se. I think it's one of those things that you have to invest in and invest, but you have to invest in it for a while to get to the point where actually like this sort of systematic change starts happening. Tessa, can I ask a question? 
I was really intrigued by the the point Laura made that um, female investors see uh, outperform male, their male counterparts by one point eight percent. I think you said like any indications to as to why and how because it's super interesting. Yeah, generally, um, this, the, everybody thinks that that's because female investors are just they have less risk appetite. So you're sort of looking at more ETF driven investing, like funds and very well diversified, less risky portfolios, a lot less sort of stock picking. I think if you look at some of the stats on, for example, like the like Tesla day traders, like they are predominantly male. So I don't think they're helping the cause in terms of the numbers there. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's sort of portfolio composition and also length, like the whole time in the market versus timing the market. Like female investors tend to be like buy and hold and like male investors tend to like be a bit more, I guess, actively engaged is probably the right description because they're like going in and checking and maybe like constantly like doing more things, rebalancing and stuff. Um, so a couple of things are yeah, sort of type of instrument and also time holding it. I think there was also a point in this story. So Invest Engine said that 40% of women don't know how stocks and shares ISAs work compared to 29% of men. And then to Tesla's point, also being risk averse, that is what's creating um, the gap. And so interested in your thoughts more broadly as in terms of how you uh, educate your customers, um, how do you bridge that gap? I mean, beyond just women generally, like if people are not knowledgeable about the thing that you offer, how do you how do you try and change that? Uh, assuming that maybe you can tell us from a, a sort of a go cardless perspective how you offer that customer education. I mean, it's a it's a really interesting question, right? So, um, and it kind of also kind of ties back to some of our earlier conversation about market differences, right? So, um, we find, for example, that our customers' customers in the UK are really, really comfortable with paying with their bank account for things, right? Like we've all in the UK been paying for, I don't know, our energy bills via our bank account for you know years now. Um, whereas um, when we when we kind of enter the US market and we talk to our customers, customers in the US, very, very different, right? They're very much used to paying with a credit card and they would not know what you what you meant if you said, hey, pay by ACH or something. It just does not compute. So we have to spend a lot of time, first of all, educating our customers over why they would want to do this thing um, and then giving them the tools to educate their own customers about why they, would, why they might want to do this thing um, and what the benefits are for them and then their benefits for their customers. And then, you know, that's not even doing the full story, right? Like that's still kind of one step removed. It's then, well, how do we then communicate directly with those end users to kind of walk through, okay, well, why aren't you doing it this way? What what don't you understand? Why don't you understand it? Um, why don't you understand it? Um, and then and then kind of working really closely with them to to try and, you know, just persistently and doggedly kind of talk through, okay, well, here's what's in it for you. Here's why it's, you know, good, relevant and making comparison points as well, right? Um, those, you know, stories about, okay, people in, you know, Germany are comfortable with this. Here's the success they've had. People in, you know, Australia are comfortable this way. Here's the success they've had. I guess showing people that the upsides can happen and have happened and and there's real world people very much like you doing the same thing um is is probably something we lean into quite a lot but yeah it's 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 a it's a challenge that we come across in in the payment space and i'm, I'm sure it's it's i'm sure tom has uh, stories about that as well yeah tom what are, what are your thoughts on this one um do you, do you kind of agree on what's been said so far yeah i, I think it's really important to like there are a lot of habits and uh, in, in every market, uh, it, it's very like sometimes if you're from a different market, then then it's like why is, why is it ever there? Um, it doesn't make sense, but it it is there, and and it, it's it's very hard to to change these habits. So therefore, it's 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 important to also very listen carefully to to the local customer, and for us, it's sometimes the customer of the customer, and um, that we really understand what what they want, and then uh tailored offering to to those needs uh, and not basically apply your own paradigm to an yeah to a different market and tessa for the, this kind of education piece is there a sort of element that like a rising tide lifts all boats as in if you kind of educate everybody like it will kind of eventually work into parity or you know can you tailor your uh sort of education or, or um you know, promotion of getting involved in investment purely to women, but then does that have an adverse effect that you're then excluding men? What was your kind of thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think my general thoughts on like the whole positive discrimination thing are that like I don't believe that change happens without it, like big change. So I think it's important to do it. But then I also think you you still don't want to like leave out like any of the major groups either. That like I, there's thankfully there's a lot out there education material wise, platform wise, um, everything from like podcast newsletters, books um, that I think means that there's a good basis for you know, whatever gender you are or associate with, you can you can find out the basics of investing. Um, but I think it's important to create spaces for people that have been previously excluded from something or like haven't felt like it was kind of in their territory or their wheelhouse, um, which is why I like a lot of the female, I mean, female investors do an amazing job of this. Um, like they have a huge female investor community that, you know, take part in all sorts of like events. And um, I think those sorts of spaces are really important. But equally, it is like a case of educating everyone. Like we're still at a point where people in Europe are not investing as much as they should be. And that includes men and women. Um, so the education piece is important to also build into your app and your UI. Like you need to make sure people understand what they're doing. Um, and obviously that's not done on gender. That's done on like just all customers. So everything from you have a new product, you're trying to explain what it does. Like how do you have like little eye buttons in the right places if you're talking about a new type of metric that maybe somebody doesn't know about. And so what I think we're saying is, Education is super important, whoever it is for, because there's still, you know, a lack of clarity on investment all over the world for everyone. And obviously this this problem is not going away, but it's obviously fantastic what uh, organizations like Invest Engine and Female Invest are doing to try and at least reduce that gap, if not close it completely just yet. But as Tessa said right at the top, it is going to take a little while. Um, so I'm not slightly negative note we will move on to our next story uh which comes from fintech news singapore which is that the world bank study reveals key factors in enabling fintech growth uh, so a research paper from the world bank has revealed the most common enablers of fintech growth which are banking systems development and increased competition in the market a fast-growing economy access to technology and a high quality policy environment and so in essence, where a banking system is less developed or competitive, there will be more fintech opportunities and vice versa. This is likely meeting an unmet need in the market or by a certain demographic of that market who are either unbanked or more trusting and adopting of fintech solutions over the existing incumbents. Findings of World Bank research show that fast-growing young economies are the biggest adopters of fintech products. And this is consistent with other studies such as the EY Global Fintech Adoption Index. Uh, which shows that Asia is the global leader in fintech adoption, with China coming in at 87% adoption and India equally at 87% of the adoption, ranking at the top of the list. So, there's quite a lot in there. But is that surprising? Are these the factors that you thought would be most common? Um, I have to say, when I first read it, that all kind of made sense uh, to me. But is there anything that you think uh, was was missing or, you know, wasn't on that list or, you know, deserves a highlight. Uh, so Mac, let's start with you. I looked at it and thought at first, yeah, that checks out. Um, that makes sense. I, I was particularly pleased actually to see the high quality uh, policy environment on there. Um, I think uh, people sometimes overlook that um, and kind of assume that things happen by magic or for market forces and so on. And I think having a high quality policy environment is a big enabler. Um, of course, in many, many respects, it can be frustrating in some areas as well. Um, but uh, there's some really, really strong examples of um, of kind of uh, a high quality policy environment leading to banking systems development and increased competition um, and gen therefore generating a faster growing economy and so on. So um, uh, no major surprise there. But I, I think maybe the maybe the one surprise was that that one was included, um, because I would like to have seen it included. And there's always a chance that it's not, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of regulation uh, piece and and sort of everything that goes behind that. So kind of government support and so on uh, to to make this something that um, economies want to double down on and invest in is is super important. I think I sort of saw this um, as you know when you're at school and you had to learn about fire and it was like you had the fire triangle of like heat, oxygen, and fuel. And if you don't have one of those things, it's not going to work. I feel like it's a bit like this, like you need that regulatory landscape, but you need the access to technology and that kind of competition element as well. Um, Tom, what was your thoughts on this? Um, do you think we need kind of all the pieces of the puzzle for this to come together properly? Um, when reading, I, I thought it, it made complete sense. So I, I, I don't 
uh, I could follow uh, all the reasonings, but uh, yeah, how do you say, no, no strong opinion there. I was just, I just thought of maybe one thing that, that I just struck me now is that maybe one thing that has surprised me now looking back at it again is, um, there's no mention really explicit mention of access to capital. Uh, and that might be something that, that is potentially missing, right? Like, um, you know, you can have all these things, but if people can't get hold of some cash to get things started and to invest, then, then that's potentially a, a challenge as well. So I, actually now looking at it, that's, that is a bit of a surprise, although potentially it's a derivative of a, you know, a fast growing economy, for example. Yeah, I think that that might be the case. I think it did say it was sort of positively correlated with the capital market development in the hope that that would mean funding, but it's not necessarily a, a guarantee. Um, Tessa, what are your, your thoughts on this, particularly maybe on that funding piece as well of getting investment where it needs to go? Yeah, I think 100% access capital here is so important. Like you, you're not going to get the type of like, people that take risks and push boundaries and think about different ways to do things um, if they don't have the sort of flexibility to be able to do it. Um, I mean, everyone always like, not makes a joke, but everyone always says, well, you know, American funding rounds are so like massive compared to like the ones that you see in Europe. But you also see like really exciting things come out of that too. I think um, you, you, I mean, the story we covered at the beginning, right? That was like about all the FinTech investment that's going into um, somewhere like India. And I think that's a really put, like good example of that particular point here, which is that, you know, you're seeing a lot more uh, innovation come out of these companies because of it. Um, and these investors that are investing them aren't like, it's not, they're not Indian VCs. They're not, it's not like local capital that's being invested in that. It's global capital, which um, is another interesting piece. Yeah, so it doesn't actually have to be like a kind of homegrown, strong funding environment. It just means you need access to capital wherever that capital can be found. Um, I found it interesting that it said that fintech activity slows down in countries that already have a more inclusive and competitive banking system. That sounds like it's a negative, but surely for that home market, that's actually a positive. So fintech is only really kind of doing its job if there's a problem to solve. But if the home market is already well set up, then actually everything theoretically should be running as it's meant to. And fintech is only kind of plugging gaps where the incumbent system isn't working as well as it could do for customers. Um, have I interpreted that wrong? What do you guys think? I, I, maybe one one thing there's I I think it's a it's an important point, right? Like any business should be solving a problem and serving a need, whether that's fintech or otherwise. And if there isn't a need, then that's effectively just misallocated capital, effectively, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I follow the logic on that entirely. Could also be that, like, the banks are in places where it's maybe a bit more advanced, a bit more developed, like catching up well, so that the split is a bit more even. Like you see, um, you know, some of the bigger banks, places like the UK, they're starting to, like, for example, buy smaller, like, trading platforms so that they can offer like better investment options. So maybe in places where like the development is a little bit better, you see a bit more parity between fintechs and the banks because they're sort of keeping up to speed a bit more than they maybe are elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And I think that was also something I thought when I was reading this, that they were kind of categorizing fintech activity as obviously other, you know, to traditional financial systems. Um, but obviously for everything that we've just discussed on this show and, and kind of the journey that fintech is going on solving problems for customers, theoretically, fintech shouldn't be other in terms of like, you know, outside of, of you know, existing systems. It should be supporting them and, and, and helping. If it, As you said, Siamak, uh, if we're solving problems for customers, that has to be a good thing in whatever capacity you're solving them for. Um, so yeah, Tom, I'm, I'm kind of interested in your thoughts. It's like, fintech activity should we get to a future where that just is financial services as opposed to something that sits outside what we might call traditional financial services um yeah i i, I think these, these lines blur uh, they're already doing what a company still call themselves fintech where you can doubt if they are or the other way around uh, as long as i think it's important that it doesn't need to be uh one or the other but that the whole system can work together and and on and that we keep innovating I think that's crucial. And yeah, usually innovation comes more from the fintech side and more from the traditional banks. But um, yeah, as long as we keep innovating, I think that's important because then we can deliver better services to 
uh, the end users and, and, and they benefit from that. Definitely. And that innovation piece is kind of tied to the the other sort of pillar that we haven't mentioned, which is access to that technology and access to that uh, infrastructure, which is really driving real change. So if you have access to that technology, you can do something with it, basically. So, for example, the, the kind of leapfrogging in Africa and India um, in terms of mobile money and super apps and kind of everything that that's doing um, for financial inclusion in those regions Um interested in those specifically we have uh, episodes on our fintech insider focus series on both of those things and as part of which we were actually told by the Tupacash ceo um, who told us that i can't think of a more impactful innovation in my lifetime it's up there with the internet for impact on sub-saharan africa and what he means by that is mobile money so you can just see how much that kind of access to that technology can can really change lives um tessa final thoughts from you on that yeah, 100%. I think, like, the internet obviously, like, plays a part in even giving that access. And I think the cool thing is, like, what the impact can then have on, like, all other industries, even outside of finance, too. And mobile money, though, in particular, um, unlocks a lot for a lot of people. Um, everything from, like, your savings to how you buy a house, if you want to buy a house, to how you, like, you know, the money that you earn when you're working, for example, if you don't live in the same country as your family and you're sending it home and abroad. And there's, there's, there's so many areas that mobile money would like make an, like, a really profound impact on people's lives there. So um, I wholeheartedly agree with that, that comment. Um, so I think I'm going to move us on, but essentially we were not surprised by the findings, but we can find real world applications that, that mean that it's definitely happening and it's definitely true. Um, now for this section of the show called Big Click Energy, which is a quick-fire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week that we couldn't fit into the main show. Uh, so the first one we have comes from CNBC. Lakestar leads $14 million investment in French fintech startup Swan. So French embedded finance startup Swan has raised 37 million euros, or $40 million, in a Series B investment led by European venture capital giant Lakestar. This takes its total money raised to 58 million euros. And Swan will initially use the money to expand its operations in the Netherlands in the coming months before later expanding its operations into Italy in 2024. Swan CEO claims the Dutch market has unique features that set it apart from other European countries, making it more complex as a country in which to launch digital banking and payment capabilities. Now, ordinarily, the host would give an opinion on this. However, I am joined by someone who is already doing embedded finance in the Dutch market. So, um, Tom, I would like to hear your opinion, Anthony, uh, on whether or not you think this one CEO is is correct on that kind of unique features of the Dutch market. Uh, I I think it's uh, it's correct that, that in the Dutch market you have some typicalities, but I think that count, that counts for every market. I think it's important that you're as local and uh, as possible. Uh, as direct as possible and that you have um, uh, basically uh, technology that can make a difference in the financial life of whoever the customer is. And I think there, uh, the Dutch market is is a complex one, but yeah, I would say every new market is a complex one. So as we've said many times on the show, finding that product market fit and being as localized as possible is just going to be key, whatever market you're going into. And so our, our next story in this quick roundup is that NatWest debuts payment links for open banking payments. And this story comes from Finextra. Uh, NatWest has introduced a new way of requesting payments through a secure single-use payment link via their open banking platform, PayIt. Links can be issued by mobile, email, or social media, and customers can select which of their bank accounts to make the payment from. Additionally, customers receive a push notification when payments are paid, failed, or expired. Payments links can be used to send low-value payments up to £250, but it can also speed up the process for issuing non-card refunds or making one-off payments. So CMAC is our resident open banking and payments expert. Uh, I, want, I want your opinion on this. So what, what were your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a an interesting story for, for a number of reasons. Um, I, I think the main thing is it's just how something so simple... <laughs> And straightforward, right? A payment link can actually deliver a ton of value. We often, when we think, you know, we talked about innovation earlier, um, and we, you know, uh, your mind often goes to, you know, hugely complex things that you know people don't quite understand, um, as uh, and trying to kind of you know develop something brand new. But in reality, 
what often makes the difference is, you know, combining something that works really well with something else that works really well to create something that's new and innovative. And, you know, so in this case, clearly, um, you know, NatWest have introduced, you know, payment links to their platform, um, you know, something that at GoCardless we've done for a, for a while now. But the, the idea is quite simple, right? Um, how do you help people? Um, how do you help businesses? Um, request payment from their customers and how do you make it really easy for those customers to um, you know make that payment um, on a mobile when you're out and about and 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 in 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 scenarios where you know you don't have the infrastructure to do that and and payment links and pay links are a great way to do that you know we've see we see a lot of businesses using uh, what we call pay links um, thinking about you know fitness instructor instructors, um, you know people at you know sport clubs, um, the you know kids starting the football again at the beginning of the year. Um, we're seeing more on this. Uh, for example, we've got a partnership with Swim England where they're doing exactly the same thing. And you know how do you just in those really small communities um, offer a really simple way to to kind of collect and, and make payments? And, and PayLinks are a great example of that. And, and I personally think it's great that more and more businesses are providing small businesses in particular um, with those sorts of capabilities that make it really easy for them to to do what they do best. That's really great insight. Thank you so much. And yeah, I guess it's finding that kind of killer use case that people can actually start using it and it makes their lives simpler and, you know, they can just do what they're wanting to do, such as pay for a swim lesson as quickly and as easy as possible in a way that works for them. Um, so that can only be a good thing. And now it is time for the and finally section of the show, a look at something more offbeat from the news this week. Um, this is usually my favorite part of the show, so I'm really excited to get to do this this week. Um, so our sillier story of the week is that police dog Bo is now one of many canines to receive a pension for when they retire from the police force. So this comes from the Leicester Mercury. Um, so a nice shout out to a local publication. Um, as we record this, it is National Pension Awareness Week, if you didn't already know. Uh, to celebrate, we want to talk about Leicestershire Police, who have set up a new scheme for their dogs. Uh, the scheme means that any retired police pooches will receive £500 paid to their humans uh, to go towards any medical care in their twilight years. Uh, this also follows Nottinghamshire, who was set up uh, a similar scheme 10 years ago in, in 2013, apparently. Uh, and there are also numerous charities who raise money to provide pensions for retired police dogs and service animals. Thoughts? <laughs> and what do you guys think? Tessa? Oh, I'm such a big dog lover. Like, how could I hate this? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it, like, it's what it is, isn't it? Where, like, if you take the basics, they obviously worked their entire life they deserve a pension. Um, but I think it's nice because it incentivizes, like, dog owners to also, like, look at you know, adopting retired elderly dogs um, so that they don't just have to spend their twilight years like in a, you know, in a dog shelter or anything. So I think that's also really nice too. Yeah. Yeah, that is really true because I, I don't know that much about police dogs, but I assume they kind of work with a police handler, but then when they retire, they need an actual sort of forever home to go to. So that is a good incentive for uh, the adoption of those dogs, I would imagine. See my thoughts? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I'd, I'd be really interested in um, in the looking at the data from. Did you just say Nottinghamshire was uh, was a, a, a police force that did it earlier? So I'd be really interested to see how many people have taken that up. Um, has it helped more dogs kind of get uh, you know homes and and so on? So um, I'd be really keen to actually find that out. But yeah, I mean, it sounds sensible to me. Um, why not? Absolutely, why not? Um, Tom, do you know if there's anything like this uh, um, in Amsterdam where you are? No, uh, we have quite a good pension system over here, but um, nothing for dogs. So maybe this is a good uh, learning opportunity. Yeah, maybe that's the uh, the next expansion. That's what they need to do next. So we did have a question in here, and I don't know if you guys are prepared for this, uh, but we were brainstorming internally of like what we would call uh, a pension for a pet, uh, just trying to find um, some puns uh, in, in the LMFS growth team. Does anyone want to throw their hat in the ring? Did you have any suggestions for this? Everyone looks slightly scared. <laughs> I had a an idea around not letting sleeping dogs lie, but that was as close as I got to to an actual name for a for a scheme. Yours is so much more highbrow than mine. Mine is like covered, but like fur instead of covered. I like it. Yeah, covered or financed forever. Nice. Or loved forever. Maybe that's nicer. 
I can't top that. No, I, can't. I think, yeah, I think we've reached our peak here. I think that is maybe where we need to leave it, uh, Tessa. But if our listeners have any suggestions, I believe we've already put a call out on social media. So please join that chat um, and give us your best pet-based puns. And so that wraps up this week's Fintech Insider. Thank you so much to our guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you uh, and your company, starting with you, Tom? Uh, uh, about me on LinkedIn and our company, uh, quite well covered, so... Uh... Google will uh, do the magic. Just Google and then we'll find you. <laughs> um, see you back. Not quite as well known as Adian just yet, but so you might have to go to gocardless.com and you can you can find out a little bit more about Gocardless there. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Simac. Fantastic. And Tessa? Yeah, you can find us um, lightyear.com and you can find me on LinkedIn at Tessa Bryant or I want to say Twitter, but it's X now uh, at Tessa Bryant. I can't get used to that either. Yeah, I can't get used to that either. <laughs> um, so as for me, you can find everything we do about Elemnafest at elemnafest.com. Obviously, you're listening to this podcast, Fintech Insider. Um, but if you are not already subscribed, please do. Uh, and you can find me, Laura Watkins, on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcast at elemnafest.com. Thank you very much and goodbye.